0: Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at SumatiSparks.com. And today I'm really excited to have as my guest, Verona, Verona, sorry, Veronica Monet. I was just saying how easy her name was to pronounce. Veronica Monet is the author of Sex Secrets of Escorts and the founder of the Shame-Free Zone. She's an intuitive relationship coach, and she helps couples use her exquisite partnership formula to transform their disagreements into the best sex of their lives. Welcome to the show, Veronica. I'm
1: so excited to be here. Thank you for having me on your show.
0: Of course. So glad to have you. I've known you for quite a while, but haven't seen you in a long time, so it's really glad to have you here, and I'm excited to it's hear true. about your yeah. Um, I'm excited to hear about what you've created, the Exquisite Partnership Formula. So I want to start there and learn a little bit about how that came about and what that is and, and how it can lead to the best sex of our lives. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, basically, I have kind of distilled what I've learned from being in relationship. And I've been in relationship um, for quite quite some time i was married for 15 years i've been in my current relationship for eight years and and i've had a lot of different types of relationships i had what uh with when i was married it was an open marriage uh and now i'm in a relationship which is polyamorous and i personally don't define those the same they're different um but in monogamous arrangements as well so i've just learned an awful lot about relationship and One of the things that was recurrent for me was a lot of disagreement, arguing, conflict. And that's not surprising because I grew up in a home where my parents fought all the time. And sometimes their arguments tipped over into domestic violence. Um, It was sad and upsetting and scary for me as a child. But then when I left home, I ended up duplicating a lot of those patterns in my own personal life Um, And, you know, I I ended up seeking a lot of different therapies and support groups and self-help stuff and really just trying to figure out how do we get past this. So I've really been down in the trenches there relationship-wise. And then I found that over the years I went beyond just moving past those problems to achieving something that I didn't hear a lot of other people talking about—a um, a partnership that was very much uh, based upon transparency and honesty—and um, in, a, in a degree, and to a degree that I think uh, is kind of scary for a lot of people—and I found that while the people around me were starting to complain about, well, you know, their relationship quote-unquote matured into something that wasn't as hot, it wasn't as passionate, it wasn't as romantic, but it was um, stable and secure and comforting and satisfying and fulfilling. And I thought, why why is that a zero-sum game? Why is it that you can only have one or the other? Why can't you have all of that? I certainly was experiencing all of that. And it was at that point that I thought, hey, let's let's raise the bar here. For me, in my own personal journey, uh, the sex in my long-term relationships has gotten better every year. And I really think that's because I've invested in the communication and the emotional terrain. And, And when you grow that area, there's a way in which we can let down our, our guard, let down our, our walls, and, and merge with each other in a more and more beautiful, ascendant way. So, you know, I'm not saying this path is for everybody. Some people don't want to be that intimate, they don't want to be that close, and they may be very happy with their sexual routine. But um, I work with people who want more. <laughs> so that's mm-hmm. that's what I that's what I teach. That's what I coach the couples that I work with into, not having to settle.
0: I love that that you say. If you invest in the area of communication and transparency, then the intimacy can increase through the years rather than fading. Why do you think that is? How does communication and transparency lead to sex continuing to get better?
1: Well, you know, it's it's kind of like this. If I want to be on a um, a growthful spiritual path, I can't get lazy with my own personal development either. I need to be taking my yoga to new places or taking my meditation to new places or periodically doing a, a tune-up by getting back into therapy or maybe some kind of a, a group where I'm growing. I'm just constantly growing because it's... It, the law of physics is, you know, things are either deteriorating or they are growing, they're changing. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. want to be changing in a way that's growthful, positive, and, and uh, in moving forward at all times. Um, if that's my personal path, then certainly my relationship needs to be on that path, too. My relationship needs to be geared to grow, to change. It needs to be built for change which means it's got to be a dynamic part of my life. It cannot be like the house that I moved into that I just want to maintain it and keep the same forever and ever. That's just not how relationships work. And this is why, you know, we we human beings live longer than ever now. Um, and because we have longer life, lifespans and we, ha- we actually are more vital and alive uh, than ever before. So the combination of being... Um, you know, uh, fully alive in life kind of creates this desire for a fullness of life. It's not like in my grandparents' day where they um, got married, had kids, and then just got old together. People, you know, hit their 40s, 50s, and 60s, and they want to start life all over again. And and the Mm -hmm. only thing I'm suggesting is that you can start life all over again with the same partner. And and Mm -hmm. here's the benefit to it. The benefit to staying with the same partner is that you don't get to walk away from the areas of your own personal growth that you don't want to work on. You, you've mm-hmm. got to go into them. You've got to have that courage mm-hmm. to take on the parts of yourself that are more entrenched and less evolved. And, and I
0: personally they're just going to show up again in the next relationship anyway, right? <laughs>
1: they They will unless you just want to do the serial monogamy thing, which basically would be mm-hmm. every every couple of years you're going to move on to somebody else because oops oops we're we're right back where we were, so let's find a new mm-hmm. partner and we'll just wait it out and keep doing it and do it and do it over and over and over again, which after a while I think takes a real toll on us um, it can make people kind of cynical and um and, you know, there's a lot of grace that gets piled up that way.
0: So Yeah, and I just some think people it's, it's think they're just more... bad at relationships and they stop trying.
1: <laughs> or a lot of people will just make this assumption that there's no good partners out there. Everybody out there, right. you know, I, I hear a lot of people say that in the little small town where I live and work. They're kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, there's nobody decent to date around here. And I'm like,
0: eh, you need to get a mirror. <laughs> Right, right, right Cool, well I like that You said relationships need to be built for change Because we can't I think that happens a lot When one of us in a partnership Wants to grow And the other feels threatened by that And kind of pulls them back Or um, the person's afraid to really express themselves In the world because it might threaten their partner So I love that idea To go into the relationship and build it so that it has room for that dynamic nature of of life where we all can grow and change and express ourselves in different ways throughout our lifetime.
1: And you have to be committed to the idea that you're going to grow regardless of whether your partner does or not. So I'll Mm -hmm. give you a for instance uh, my husband and I were together for fifteen years and i 'd say those first first ten years were very growthful. We were doing a lot of couples counseling and going to uh, coaching groups and support groups for couples and parenting classes and 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 we we had this dynamic um, uh, a sport a common sport we both loved to scuba dive we traveled around the world and saw uh, some just gorgeous sights i don't even know if they exist anymore with what's happening to the oceans but that was a mm-hmm. time in our life that was really beautiful and amazing and uh we were raising children and then um he relapsed around his um alcoholism mm-hmm. and that uh, the the, the it was through prescription pills and, and I, I hung in there for another five years because I felt really bad about the fact that he was battling chronic pain. and But after a while, you know, when he lost his job, got arrested for possession and totaled his Corvette, I realized, no, this is not just chronic pain. This man is really having a horrible relapse and it's entrenched. He's not going to turn it around. So I ended up filing for divorce at that time. But... I still, I talked to him. My God, we we still get together to celebrate birthdays and Christmases with our kids. And we still talked on the phone a lot. And um, forward with him or move forward with him because mm-hmm. he didn't want to grow anymore. And, right. um, but I still wanted to grow. So sometimes I'd call him up and try to sort out some conversation that we've had. And, and we called it problem solving. That's what we called it. He goes, he goes, I don't understand. Why are we still doing this? We're divorced. And when I said to him, I said, work to fourth, but I'm not done learning. Right. <laughs> I still want to grow. I still want to learn. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: Good for you. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're good so yeah, That's excellent. I'm glad to hear that. Um, and so just to uh, change directions a tiny bit, you had mentioned that you have been in an open relationship, and now you're in a polyamorous relationship. So it sounds like you have specific definitions of those things. Can you describe that, the differences?
1: Yes, and and as a relationship coach and a certified sexologist, I want to acknowledge that the definitions I'm about to give you are not necessarily the definitions for everybody. I I really believe that people should be able to self-define. Um, And, Mm -hmm. you know, we're really getting into a place nowadays where people define their own um, gender, their own sexual orientation in any way they want. We have so many terms now. So Mm -hmm. um, these are the broad categories that fit for me. Um, When I had an open marriage, what that meant to me was that we had an agreement that we were not going to fall in love with other sexual partners. So, I was working as a high end escort at the time, and occasionally he, he, my husband, would actually go to see um prostitutes and sometimes mm-hmm. I'd pay for it i'd like give him a valentine's day card and say, "Honey, go you know have fun on my dime mm-hmm. uh, so mm-hmm. it was that was our arrangement and and sometimes we'd do something people call swinging we'd actually go someplace uh with the intention of hooking up with uh, another person or another couple. and uh, But what I found is over time, we, neither one of us was all that interested in that. It was just really nice knowing that we had it available to us if we wanted to do it. And right. that freedom, that freedom really actually uh, led to uh, monogamy. It's kind of ironic. Sometimes sometimes joke, if you really want a monogamous relationship, you should Create an open relationship because the monogamous people are cheating. But poly, I'm in a polyfidelitous V. So the person that I'm with is with another person and with me, and she and I are, don't have any other partners. So it's it's a V, meaning he's at the center of the mm-hmm. V, and then she and I, yeah. So and we don't we don't have sex with other people, um, and mm-hmm. she and I don't have sex with each other either. Uh, it's mm-hmm. um, it, and why? because that's how we want it which is the great thing when you give yourself the freedom to decide how do I want my relationship to look you can create it any way you want but here's here's the mm-hmm. distinction for me in polyamory you know Deborah Annapole who recently passed away I've, I I miss her um I had mm-hmm. her on my show years ago um, mm-hmm. she, she's the one who is kind of considered the mother of modern day polyamory and that mm-hmm. term means many loves it doesn't mean many sexual partners it means many loves so polyamory as i understand it is where we develop um commitments to each other we negotiate what those commitments are so before i ever um had any kind of a sexual connection with my current partner i actually met with his other partner uh she she interviewed me (laughs) so and and we had agreements about the timing of when 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 sexual um connection could take place um there were it's it's negotiated it's very conscious it's not something that oops honey I've seen too many of my clients that are in relationships with somebody who says, "Oh, I'm Polly," and what that means is I got drunk and I had sex with somebody last night, and you should just <laughs> not bother me about it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, yeah, right? I, mean, it's like, I do not consider that ethical non-monogamy. Right. So, uh, yeah, and I'm, you know, quoting another person now here, Dossie Easton, author of The Ethical Slut. You know, we are supposed to um, bring our ethics and our consideration, our love, um, and, um, and our honesty, to polyamory. And, and oftentimes in an open relationship, it kind of say, it reminds me of the how the U.S. military used to be, don't ask, don't tell. <laughs> and sometimes it's that way, sometimes not. Sometimes an open relationship just means I don't want us to, you to have a house with that person, to fall in love with them, to have a marriage ceremony with them. But in a polyamory, that happens a lot of times. Um, mm-hmm. I can think of a whole bunch of different people I know of who've had um, kind of group marriages, or they have several different homes. They have a child, you know, shared child care. Um, they have contracts for what happens to the property. It's very, it can be very, very involved.
0: So right. I just read an article I, yesterday about. I just read an article about a married couple that um, acquired a girlfriend, and they got divorced. So that there wouldn't be a hierarchy in their triad, I thought that was really cool.
1: <laughs> I love that <laughs> I do hmm, you're giving me some ideas there um, <laughs> so so I'm curious. I know you're interviewing me, but your show is about open relationships. I would love to hear what that terminology means to you and where you where you fit polyamory into that.
0: Well, I'm really glad you asked, because I took a note here, because I was at a lecture by uh, someone, it was a book signing for someone that wrote a book called Love is Not Colored Blind. He was on my show a few months ago, and he was giving a lecture in Oakland about the intersection of polyamory and race. Um, It was a great talk, by the way. Um, But nevertheless, I was there with a bunch of polyamorous people, and we were talking about the terms we had a big discussion about that very issue of terms and how um, the terms that we've come up with, like polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, consensual non-monogamy, um, they're all kind of recent terms that didn't exist a few years ago, and we had to make up our own terms because we're doing something so outside the box there wasn't any language for it. But now the terms are starting to get old already. They're starting to have a charge um, so a lot of people say, well, I'm not polyamorous, whereas polyamorous was, for a minute, it was kind of an umbrella term, and then open relationship for a minute was kind of an umbrella term, but some people are like, no, like, you, in your particular situation, you might say we're not open, because you have a, a fidelitous um, V, so you're fidelist fidelis, or whatever. Polyfidelitis. <laughs> um, Polyfidelitis, so yeah. So we need new terms or no terms. And so one man I was talking to after this lecture, he pointed to a woman and he said, we've been together for four years. And I love that. He didn't put a label on their relationship. He didn't say that's my whatever, because even using the phrase my whatever implies this kind of possession, right? Um, He Hmm. didn't say, you know, that's my primary partner. That's my anything. He just said I've been in a relationship with her for four years. And I just loved how that gave me a, a sense of the fact of their relationship, but it didn't put this name on it that would then have this big charge around it for a lot of people. Did, does hmm. that make sense? Yes. And uh, it, it's
1: kind of right in
0: line with uh, where we're
1: going with um, with gender and with sexual orientation, too, because yes, I was exactly. out there in the street yeah, I was out there in the streets in the early 90s as a bisexual activist protesting to get that bi put into the the queer, uh, you know, lesbian gay parade. And, um, oh, good for you. And I actually... Yeah, I wrote, I wrote for uh, the first and only bisexual magazine called Anything That Moves. I wrote for them for five and a half years. We were all about bi-visibility. I'd go into the colleges and share about my, I, my identity, identity politics. It so just kind of defined the 90s. And, mm-hmm. and then at some point, um, I started meeting the younger activists, and they were like, I don't ascribe to a label. I, I'm not straight, gay, or bisexual. I'm, I'm fluid. <laughs> that was what I heard. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, why did I work so hard for that, that, that label, for the visibility of bisexuals? If it's... And then I realized, no, wait a second. This is actually what I was working for. This is what mm-hmm. I was an activist for. Is At some point, we stop trying to quantify people uh, by these labels, and we allow for the freedom of choice and the fact that people's needs and desires uh, shift and change over time.
0: Yes, and I think it kind of goes, it makes me think of a deeper spiritual concept that Eckhart Tolle talks about, um, where he says any kind of label, like if you say that's a tree, it has a tendency to close your mind off to the wonder and the beauty of the tree. If you look at the tree and you just try to milk that Split second before your brain says that's a tree, um, you can really enjoy the essence of that thing that we label as a tree. (laughs) So, and if you practice that, you can uh, (laughs) extend the length of time that you can enjoy something without it kind of being um, dampened by the label. So, I think we can do that with each other too. Like, you know, I've been with her for four years as an example of. Here's the fact, rather than I'm just going to call her my sweetie, my girlfriend, my primary partner, whatever, because that, I think, you know, it's human nature that we want to put things in categories in our our brain, and then we can just go, oh, I know what that is, okay, now I can move on to something else, and we're not really enjoying the beauty of, like, oh, there's someone you've been with for four years, how delightful, and that brings up a lot of stuff, like, wow, four years, you must be really close, and you've probably had a lot of fights. And, you know, it it brings up the whole story of their relationship rather than just like primary partner, okay, put you in the box, move on to the next thing. It it kind of eliminates um, the, the nuances and the complexity of human relationships. I love what you just shared.
1: I'm not an Eckhart Tolle fan, but that is very profound to me because I'm I'm sitting here in Nevada City, California. I'm looking at a whole bunch of trees, and just as you were speaking, I was trying to challenge myself to see trees as individuals and to really appreciate their beauty. And it is a different experience than if I just go, oh, yeah, there's the trees.
0: Um, And I start
1: going, Oh, okay. Now there's a Douglas fir, and there's a black oak, and and there's a cedar, and and look at how that cedar grew. Wow, that's amazing. It's all bent over there. It's it is a different a different way. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I do think that when we start having these labels in relationship, there's a couple of things that happen. I, you know. Early on in a relationship, I think we're struggling to try to figure out what is this, where is it going, what's it about, what's it mean, do we have any commitments or agreements with each other, Um, and what might those look like? And if you start to have some sense of form, like, yeah, we actually do have some agreements. Now, obviously, people enter into agreements and then enter out of them, come out of them all the time. Um, But it does kind of give the relationship some shape um, so that you can say, okay, I know that when I go home, um, you're probably going to be there. And when the bills are due, we're probably both going to pay them. And those sort of arrangements do give people kind of a sense of continuity, a sense of, of, of security, if you will. But... If we're not careful, I think that can tip over into, like you were saying, ownership, possessiveness, uh, trying to control each other, uh, codependency. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I, I work with a lot of, code of patterns uh, in myself mm-hmm. and in my clients both. I think it's one right. of the most pervasive patterns
0: there is in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, before we go into that, I do want to ask you more about your process with your clients but I want to dig a little bit deeper into your relationship if you don't mind (laughs) um go for it so you said yeah you said you're in a V and so you have this this woman that's also with your same male partner um and so did you have any jealousy um when you first got into this arrangement do you still have issues with jealousy Um, Let's talk about jealousy in general because I call it the J word. It's the most common question we get as non-monogamous people. What do you do with jealousy? So how did you manage your own jealousy and how do you help your clients with jealousy?
1: So I have not experienced
0: uh,
1: jealousy in the context of the relationship. I've experienced something else, which is a sense of insecurity, so and and maybe maybe that really underlies a lot of jealousy anyway but i I, I feel pretty confident about who i am um and how I move through the world and and also uh, my ability to attract partners so i i don't i don't and i never have uh felt like competing for a man 's attentions um, it's just not my it 's not my script. Um, Mm -hmm. and and that probably has a lot to do with my childhood. My father was trying to get my sister and I to compete with each other, and she took the bait, um, and um, I really didn't have the opportunity to because he he was just scapegoating me so heavily that I I just was repulsed by the whole dynamic, and and I pulled away from it. And there were a few times, obviously, that I was competitive uh, with my sister, and it, it always just hurt. It just hurt so bad to go there. So I, I think as I uh, grew up, left home, it just wasn't my M.O. I didn't compete. I, I've never tried to steal a man away from a woman. I, I don't know how that works. I have I've no interest in it. Um, but... I, uh, and I know that's going to be kind of like a former high end escort. What is she talking about there? that? Not... <laughs> but anyway, that's that's another whole that's another whole story. And all I could say is, you know, there's a lot of mythology about what sex workers are about, and then there's the actual reality of it. But mm-hmm. what the insecurity because I had been married before, and I did have the the marriage contract, and I knew. Uh that on some level he can't just walk away and leave me with all the bills, Of course, I was actually paying all the bills anyway, so that would have been immaterial but um there, still somehow it just like feel like okay i know I know what I'm dealing with here and 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 then to not be married um and he's married to her that has created imbalance at times. For me and insecurity for me like well what what's gonna you know what what happens tomorrow or as i get older and and uh, you know i turned uh 58 this uh, last month so um the mind starts thinking about things in a little bit of different way too you know it's not so much like oh yeah well i'll just start over i mean it could my grandmother started over in her 50s, and then she started over again in her 70s. So I come from a long line of really feisty, innovative women. But that, that's the one. If you're, if you're looking for my, my insecurity, my uh, tender underbelly, that's the one. It's like, well, will you be here tomorrow? The same thing. we are go back to the childhood uh, where my father disowned me when I was 19, And I I basically was homeless from age 19 on, um, and on my own, had to provide for myself, put myself through college, uh, always supporting myself. And then I got married and supported my family. So Mm. does that answer your question?
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, you, you know, a lot of people, once they scratch below the surface, when they're jealous, they find that they're really just feeling insecure. So it sounds like, you go straight to the insecurity and bypass the label of jealousy. And because you're, you've been into personal growth for so long, I mean, it sounds like you're so good at identifying what's going on inside you that you just go mm-hmm. right to it's insecurity. That's really the underlying feeling.
1: Yeah, and my insecurity is not about who's the pretty one or the sexy one or the one that's loved. I I actually have a tremendous amount of confidence in that department my insecurity goes to the thing that my father took away from me,
0: which is a place to call home. Right, right, right. If you're just joining yeah. us, you're listening yeah. to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. We're speaking with Veronica Monet, the author of Sex Secrets of Escorts and the founder of the Shame-Free Zone, and we're talking about jealousy um, what do you tell your clients about jealousy if that comes up for them? Do you have a system for helping other people with that?
1: You know, I usually work women around their self-confidence, self-esteem. And um, I have some very unique approaches to that particular, that green monster. Um, I'm much more interested in teaching people how they can feel better about themselves because I, I, I feel like if that's what you're looking at over there, um, even now when I'm working with myself around my insecurities, one of the things that I track is how satisfied am I with uh, my current career arc, how satisfied am I with where my life is at, um, what, what things am I not doing that would completely fulfill me, because the the same thing that applies when you're single, when you're single, you will attract people to you if you are not not grasping, searching, uh, longing for, in other words, you're you're actually pretty self-sufficient. you're having a good time. You are loving your life and loving yourself. That naturally, if you're in, if you kind of created an emotional sinkhole where you feel insecure and empty and depressed and and um, you're wishing somebody would kind of save you from that, you're less likely to pull in people. And the people that you would pull in, uh, you're probably going to regret having done that because uh, anybody that's attracted to an emotional sinkhole is probably not going to be a very healthy human being. Mm-hmm. Um so that's I always want to get people's focus back on themselves what What is it about you, you know do you have a dream that you haven't lived out yet? Um, I can answer that question. I haven't written my second book yet that's mm-hmm. and it's it's frustrating when you when you see yourself not uh, doing something that you know is going to really fulfill you and and make you happy. and then we have to find out, well, what is it about me that's getting in the way here? So, if somebody's jealous, I want to take them into building confidence around their body and their sexuality so that they feel good about themselves um, i i to me jealousy is is just a sign
0: that you don't love you enough you know mhm yes exactly yeah um i'll have to I'll have to send you my art I'll have to email you my article. Um, that I wrote called The Four Pillars of Self-Care for Jealousy Transformation. And it's all about self-love, having a passion project, having you know a passion hobby, um, and your meditation that you do, and being able to really tune in and know what you want and ask for it. So all four of the pillars are about turning inward and focusing on your own self-care because when you feel aligned with spirit – When I feel in line with spirit, when I'm engaged in purposeful activity, whether it's a hobby or a career, um, when I'm being honest about what I really need in my life, and being compassionate with myself, when all those things are happening, then there's very little room for jealousy, isn't there? Then there's just basically a conversation with the other person, right? It's true.
1: Now, uh, one caveat that I want to say about that, and by the way, that just sounds fabulous. Uh, what you ran through there—it's it, very important to get embodied into and, and to be uh, learning how to um, to self-soothe, uh, to show, to be there for yourself. Because when that when that emotional mm-hmm. bottom drops out, whether it's through jealousy or anger, um, it's often because you have abandoned yourself. And and then of mm-hmm. course you think the other person did it, but actually it was you. Um, the, the the one caveat that I would put on this discussion is healthy boundaries. Mm-hmm. So so here's the thing: if if my partner is uh, flirting with other people um, at a party in a way that makes me feel very uncomfortable, I get to look at that in two directions. I get to look at my own insecurities but I also get to look at how I may be my it's possible that my boundaries are being violated and there's a way in which I can remember an instance in particular where my husband was flirting shamelessly with this young beautiful girl at a party that we went to. She was sitting on his lap. They were whispering in each other's ears, and for me, this was a total turn on. I was I was I was I was digging it. <laughs> but but there could be another another situation where um my partner might have And I can think, actually with that same, my husband. I can think of a situation where he um, did something very, very subtle. Uh, It was so subtle, it was meant to be dishonest. And I felt that twinge of discomfort. Well, it might be my impulse to call that jealousy. But actually, what's happening there is a violation So same man, uh, you know, one is shamelessly flirting right in front of me, and I'm loving it, and the other is doing something real subtle which just carries flirtation in it with this other person but is meant to undermine me, meant Mm. to somehow or another hopefully elude my gaze. Hopefully I won't notice it. Well, if that's what's happening, that to me is not a ethical non monogamy. That's somebody who is trying to gaslight you and you should be upset. Mm-hmm. You that's mm-hmm. that should light up on your radar is uh uh-uh. uh. Not 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 having that.
0: Right. Yeah, so to trust those intuitions that those little red lights or red flags that go off inside of us and to trust that because Oftentimes, they're pointing toward behavior um, that's not ethical in the other person.
1: Yes, and to be able to me, the first thing is I always just go to myself and try to figure out: is there something about me that I need to look at right now? And if Mm -hmm. I if I am on an aggressive growth path and I'm keeping tabs on all my little you know places that I still need to work on. Uh, it's probably going to be pretty apparent to me. Oh yeah, that's my thing. I need to work on that. But if I look at that and go, mm, no, that's that's not what's happening here. Then then I then I look over to the other side, you know, the other person, and go, okay. So what am I intuiting? What am I sensing here that's mm-hmm. coming from them? And why does that energy feel? bad it's it's like a bad touch you know if you try Mm -hmm. to explain a bad touch by the touch you'll miss the whole thing because bad touch and good touch is often the exact same touch it's the energy that went into that touch that makes it good or bad
0: Mm -hmm. the intention of the
1: toucher (laughs) yes exactly right but i just um one of my colleagues here in Nevada City, her name is Melissa Mango and she was teaching us about uh, from the Betty Martin's Will of Consent. And mm-hmm. um I was just loving the way she was demonstrating um a bad touch and a good touch. They were they were identical to each other, but her energy mm-hmm. was not.
0: So. Mm. Cool. cool, okay, well thank you for that. It was great information. Um, Let me move on um, a little bit about the shame-free zone. Um, You say on your website that you're on a mission to heal shame. Um, So tell us what you mean by shame and why you feel like that's such an important thing for us to look at and how that became one of the central concepts of your teachings.
1: Thanks for asking that. I was raised in a conservative Christian cult. It was a doomsday cult. And um, they're, they they were all about shaming us constantly and making us afraid that God was going to strike us dead with lightning. And it was very superstitious. They don't believe in yoga or meditation. That's all devil worship as far as they're concerned. Um, mm-hmm. So I was heavily shamed as a child and uh, saw what it did to my family of origin. So we also had um, two other religions in the family. My grandmother was a Mormon. My other grandmother was Assembly of God. So not really trying to indict a particular religion here, but I am, I am wanting to have the conversation about how oftentimes uh, religions will use the uh, shaming process to gain control over people. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't think that's healthy at all. I'm a fan of Brene Brown. You know, she's a shame expert and talks about the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt can sometimes uh, propel us to do a positive behavior. We'll feel guilty about a negative behavior, and we rectify it. We make amends. We change our, our path. Shame attacks who we are. And and oftentimes I find that religious messages are very shaming because the message is you were born of original sin. There's something inherently wrong or bad about you. So, you know, I don't want to offend any of your listeners. Um, I have lots of friends with different faiths, and, and, um, you know, there's different ways to practice those faiths. But some people will use the messaging to uh, create shame. And what I see, what I saw in my family of origin, was that um, the shaming drove their sexuality underground. So we had uh, rampant incest and pedophilia on both sides of family my mom's side of family and my dad's side of family and it's just it's just terrible i call incest the gift that keeps on giving i and what i mean by Mm -hmm. that is that i've just seen a lot of my relatives go mentally uh crazy i mean they just they lose Mm -hmm. their minds because they don't they never got help and the uh, being sexually perpetrated against as a child is just it's it's a lot for the um, Mm -hmm. for the mind and the physiology and the heart to deal with so Mm -hmm. um and I say that as somebody who's very sexually open, so, but mm-hmm. but not not when it comes to adults and children. That is just that is just really really damaging behavior, and it seems to me that shame will cause sexuality to come out in ways that are very non-consensual and destructive. So that's mm-hmm. that's where the, the the passion to heal shame starts for me. But then when I start mm-hmm. dealing with uh, my clients, I just, I see it over and over again. You know, so, ashamed of something that was done to them as a child, ashamed of something that they did as a child, ashamed of their body, ashamed of their sexual desires, ashamed of of just taking up space, of being alive. And it, it, it's so heartbreaking. And so for me to lead the way basically to say I, there's nothing in my life that i'm ashamed of i have i made mistakes sure um are, do i have any regrets not very many actually i kind of adhere to the spiritual practice which is we don't shut the door on the past nor do we regret it um mm-hmm. you know i um I, I would have to say I have a couple of regrets. It's really about the way I raised my children, and I, and I, I think the fact that I have regrets is actually a stumbling block spiritually. So I work on trying to release that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to. You know, shame drives it underground. Shame, shame mm-hmm. uh, attacks us. It attacks us. Mm-hmm. But taking responsibility and making amends is a very positive thing to do. Uh, and we all make mistakes, mm-hmm. so, yeah, you know,
0: yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I saw on your website that one of your primary tools for helping people heal from shame is compassion and empathy. Um, can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by those terms?
1: Well, yeah, thanks for asking that. I, I find that when my... Um, Clients are able to tell me about themselves. And I've had just about everything you could possibly imagine confessed in my office. Um, There's a way in which they feel human again. Because I'm not reactive to their stories. I'm always Hmm. connected to their inner child. And I realize Hmm. no matter what they've done, that's not who they are. So my empathy does not. Empathy isn't an excuse. Like, oh, well, that's okay. I'm sure you meant well. Just try to do better from now on. That's that's not it at all. I will very, very adamantly tell people this behavior is going to lead to these problems, or this behavior is illegal, or this behavior is unethical. I have no qualms about calling people out, but I, I, I never stop loving them. I just i I can't help it, I love them, so, and they can feel that, mm-hmm. and what I want to do is model for them the fact that no matter what they've done, they can love themselves too.
0: mhm, yeah, All right Beautiful. yeah yeah, thank you for doing that work. I'm sure that because of your background and what you've overcome you are a great resource for people who've had um, that kind of trauma in their background.
1: Mm. Yeah. I I tell them sometimes Veronica did it. So you don't have to, but also I will tell them, I don't know what you're getting ready to tell me or confess to me, but um, chances are I've either already heard it from somebody else or I could have even already done it myself. So You know, don't be afraid. Don't be
0: afraid. Right. And so when you have people that are more in the perpetrator role confessing to you, um, I'm wondering how how you're able to work through that since you were perpetrated against as a child. How are you able to hold the space for someone sharing with you when they've harmed someone? And maybe you can dovetail that into a discussion about, the current Me Too movement and how we, as men, women, and non-binary people, are learning to dance with those labels of perpetrator and victim.
1: Oh my God, that's a, that's another whole show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I I have taken a deep dive into Me Too. I, I've I've got an article on OPED News um, about it, and I and and very much I'm talking about shame, about how we are. As Tarana Burke, the woman who invented the hashtag Me Too, said mm-hmm. uh, last year, she said, the shame that women have been carrying has been transferred to where it belongs on the men. Mm-hmm. And I I am very much behind the Me Too movement. And at the same time, I am very much opposed to transferring shame from anywhere to anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. I think the fact that we are shaming men is not going to solve the problem. Uh, mm-hmm. It's going to drive it underground again, and mm-hmm. um, and we may out certain people, and we may destroy their careers, but we haven't solved the um, the issue between men and women at all. So and mm-hmm. shame is not going to. Yeah. So um, when when I'm working with so this is the thing, um, I consider everybody a victim and a perpetrator, and mm-hmm. and therefore. And I prefer the word survivor. We've all survived some kind of perpetration, and perpetrators oftentimes are some of the biggest survivors there are. So it's Mm -hmm. not hard for me to have compassion. It's not hard for me to have compassion, but when I connect them to the pain and the agony of, their, of how they were perpetrated against, then we're already making inroads on their perpetrations. We're already starting to see because it's that lack of empathy for themselves, the lack of connection to their own trauma that propels them and compels them to
0: perpetrate.
1: Uh, and that's mm-hmm. true for all of us. It's true for all of us,
0: yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I yeah. love that. That's a, a great phrase. The lack of self-empathy propels them to continue to perpetrate. Really do. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was a good distillation of what could have been a whole show. It was really helpful. <laughs> um, <laughs> so let me ask you. <laughs> um, let me ask you another question. Um, I know that you also um, use the term sacred sexuality in your work. So how do you weave that into what you do and how do you define that?
1: Oh, that's just an
0: exciting part of my work. And I,
1: I can't bring sacred sexuality to all my clients because some of them just aren't curious, aren't ready, aren't capable. Mm-hmm. Sacred sexuality requires a, a very committed spiritual path. So when I'm working with clients who have been on a spiritual path and they are into self improvement um, that that hunger that desire to to have more uh, not just more orgasms but to have more spiritual connection um, through sex is there and I love being able to um, to meet that desire with with um, I don't want to call it instructions. It's more of a vision, a vision that this is even possible, that we can use um, or or somehow or another enter into um, a sexual merging with our partner or, frankly, it's possible to do it with strangers. It just depends on what your path is. I don't think that it's possible to do it drunk or high Um, or angry. Um, But if you are in a place where you are full of love for yourself, and you're able to be connected, maybe even through prayer, meditation, yoga, something like that, where you have learned how to become more embodied and more connected to some of the higher energies in yourself. I particularly love kundalini yoga for this. A lot of times I ask my clients to start taking kundalini yoga classes so they can start to learn how to raise those energies from the sexual chakra up through the heart. And and then I teach them how to circulate it from the uh, sexual chakra to the heart and to their partner's heart and then back through the sexual chakra, create a circle. Of energy. Mm-hmm. And you can do this through eye gazing and um, conscious breathing techniques. Um, and, and it requires a tolerance for confronting your demons. It's just like meditation. Mm-hmm. You're going to go into a place where you're going to encounter the parts of yourself that are frightened, the parts of yourself that have maybe relied on avoidant or addictive behavior so that you didn't have to experience those emotions. And so there's like a clearing, a house cleaning. You start clearing this stuff out. You might cry, um, and that's okay because on the other side of that is bliss. On the other side of that is this expansion and, and this increasing freedom where you just become more and more and more. And I I like to call um, this sacred sexual practice for me, it's my holy trinity because it's me, my beloved, and the divine.
0: Hmm. Right. Well, I love to hear the way you've come full circle with your spirituality and have woven it in with sexuality and empathy and compassion. I love the work you're doing. Um, Tell me a little bit more about you... You joke that you have a bisexual brain, um, and you mentioned earlier that you'd done some activism work ab- about bisexuality, so um, why do you joke about that?
1: Well because it's so darn easy for me to understand the male perspective and the female perspective. I feel like it's in me i i don't I don't what's what's the big deal um, mm-hmm. I understand so. So, I have um a lot of male clients, which is kind of uncommon in the coaching and therapeutic uh practices. A lot of times you know the women come in and then they may drag their reluctant um boyfriend or husband to a couple session. I have the exact mm-hmm. opposite happen in my office. I get all these men who then reluctantly or they drag their reluctant wife or girlfriend <laughs> to a couple session mm-hmm. and I think part of that is because I'm a sexologist and and I have the background in the sex industry, which uh, probably is a little bit titillating for some of my clients. But I also think that a big part of it is that I understand their language. It's it's not foreign mm-hmm. to me. As a bi, as a mm-hmm. bisexual woman, I know what it's like to make love to women. I know what it's like to um, seduce a woman. I know what it's like to to ask a woman out on a date. I I, I have some idea of what it's like to get mixed messages and try to understand female culture from that perspective, and mm-hmm. um, so I can empathize and really show up for their experience. Mm-hmm. The, but but at the same time, I was born a woman. I'm cisgender female. That that's been my experience this entire lifetime, and what I know, is that I. Um, I relate to the women. I understand me too. I've had so many me too moments. M- moments I have lost count. And mm-hmm. um, and I can be an angry feminist. And and I, and I know what it's like to to be living in a world where there's just entrenched uh, routine sexism. And mm-hmm. um, and so I really and I also understand what it's like to be shamed for having a female body and and to to have to. To learn how to have um, orgasms right
0: mm-hmm. you know this
1: is this is a journey, a journey a lot of times for women that they might be an orgasmic or and really wanting to to experience pleasure how How do we move into that so, mm-hmm. so I, I understand both and when i 'm working with couples, uh, one of the things that 's just such a blessing for me is that I can. Uh, really, th- the intuitive part of me senses their pain. Um, I can feel people's feelings before they do, and I can communicate mm-hmm. that to them and help them mm-hmm. uncover stuff uh, and connect to stuff that they wouldn't otherwise. I was just working with a couple this week that, oh, it was such such a joy and a privilege to me to be able to, to reach in deep and earth some major obstacles to the relationship and to uh,
0: experience that
1: they were both feeling so much relief and joy
0: um, and hope on the other side of that. Nice, good for you. Well, that's a good segue um, into uh, letting our listeners know how they can get a hold of you because we're almost out of time. Um, so please tell us how we can find you, and I believe you also have a gift for our listeners.
1: I do, and so what I want your listeners to do is to go over to my website. It's called ShameFreeZone.com, or you can type in the ShameFreeZone.com. You can also type in VeronicaMonet.com, um, SexWithoutShame.com. Just remember, one of those—they all go to
0: this mm-hmm. one
1: website. <laughs> and uh, I have that many domains. So when you get to that page, you're going to see a video. Uh, where I'll introduce myself to you. But right below that there are four options. The one to the left allows you to just simply download a free ebook and access and get immediate access to three of my podcasts. So the the ebook is twenty seven pages long, it's over ten thousand words. It's all about the exclusive partnership uh formula. And it's a five-step process for how you can magnetize your relationship with your no. I'm all about teaching people healthy boundaries.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: this is how to, how to have healthy boundaries that invite intimacy. And uh, the three podcasts um, I, are some of, some of the better. Uh, radio shows that I've done, the juicy ones, and um, and that's absolutely free, and you get immediate access. You don't have to wait for an email or anything; you just download it immediately. And Great. that's that's my gift. That's my gift. And you can check out the other stuff. I've got online courses, and I've got a, a membership site where you can access over 200 hours of um, podcasts. But the uh, the three podcasts and this beautiful full color. Um, 27 page book is yours for the taking
0: fabulous thank you so much Veronica it was a delight having you on the show really enjoyed it so much to talk about we'll have to have uh, have you back again in a few months Oh
1: do have me back and we'll do the me too thing
0: okay perfect okay <laughs> Veronica we will right. talk to you later thank you Thank you for joining Leading Edge Love Radio Next week we'll be speaking with Zach Beach Zach Beach is an internationally renowned yoga teacher A best-selling author A poet, a love coach And the founder of the Heart Center Love School So we'll be talking with him next week About the love school And how we can all show up uh, With a more open heart um, For each other So please join us next week On Leading Edge Love Radio At 6pm Pacific Time